This morning I'm going to explore um, a parable again. This one is rather longer and more detailed than the ones we looked at yesterday. And it's the parable of the city, uh, sometimes called the parable of the ancient city. I'm going to read it out and then um, offer some reflections upon it. Suppose, monks, there's a funny sound on the, I'll turn the volume down. Is that better? Is it amplifying at the back? Yes? Okay, it's a bit better. Suppose, monks, a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path, an ancient road traveled upon by people in the past. He would follow it and see an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past, with parks, groves, ponds and ramparts, a delightful place. Then the man would inform the king or a royal minister and say, Sire, Know that while wandering through the forest I saw an ancient path. I followed it and saw an ancient city. Renovate that city, sire. Then the king or royal minister would renovate that city. And sometime later that city would become successful and prosperous, well populated attained to growth and expansion. That's the parable. This is then the way the Buddha explains it. So too, monks, I saw the ancient path, the ancient road, travelled by the fully awakened ones of the past. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road, It is just this noble eightfold path that is right seeing, right thinking, right talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting and concentrating. I followed that path and by doing so I have directly known aging and death, its arising, its cessation and the way leading to its cessation. Having directly known these things, I have explained them to the monks, the nuns, the men and women lay followers, so that this good life has become successful and prosperous, extended, popular, well-proclaimed amongst God's 
and men. Now, uh, this uh, parable, and again, I want uh, very much that we stay with those images and that we let them somehow settle so that we can get a, a picture, as it were, of what it is that the Buddha is trying to uh, communicate here. Perhaps the first thing to point out is that um, this path in the forest um, was found by chance. You don't have the sense that the person that the Buddha describes was looking for an ancient path or looking for an ancient city. It just says, suppose a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path. There's a sense here that um, what is discovered uh, comes as a surprise. Now, again, I think this points to something perhaps in our own lives. Very often the things that um, uh, mean the most to us that in a sense are perhaps the most important things for us, are things that we stumble across, things that we come across. It may be that by chance we hear someone telling us of an experience they have had, Um, perhaps by some coincidence or other we find ourselves reading a book or hearing a talk or just happening to switch on the TV, or listen to something on the radio. Very often, it's, it's those sorts of moments that spark a kind of recognition, a sense that, ah, there seems to be something in what's being said here, what's being heard here, what's being written here, Uh, that suddenly speaks to us in a way that um, we'd never really experienced before. And I, I can think in my own case, and perhaps you can find also in yours, that your interest, say, in in doing meditation or in Buddhist thought, that where did your where did they originally come from? I doubt that any of us were raised in a Buddhist um, family. Maybe some of you were now, but I think for many of us, um, we come across these things almost by chance. It's not as though that we are indoctrinated at school or in a temple into Buddhist thought, um, that strangely we find these things and they speak to us in a very vivid way. Um, I can remember when I was very, very young, I must have been about eight or, or nine years old, maybe less, 
And I was listening, uh, well, I wasn't even listening, I was playing um, in a room in our house in a village near Watford. Um, and the radio was on. And someone was speaking, I don't know about what, and I vividly remember hearing this person say that uh, Buddhist monks do not walk on the grass for fear of treading on insects. Now, why did I remember that? Um, And yet that memory uh, was of something that, for some reason, and I'm not obviously going to invoke memories of past lives, although that would be one uh, explanation. But there was something about that uh, image as a child uh, that really struck me. And I wonder sometimes um, if that wasn't, in a sense, the first uh, glimpse I had of this path in the forest that I was then to follow whether it planted a seed, uh, whether it gave me a sense of another culture that seemed to have values that I intuitively or uh, instinctively resonated with. I don't know. But nonetheless, when I look back in my own story that has led me to being here talking to you, that's where it begins. That's where that path begins. So very often, I think, uh, uh, and again, particularly in our case here in the West, um, this story may speak to us, this, this parable, because it talks of coming across something almost by chance, uh, haphazardly. I remember also being very impressed by um, one of the verses in a text called the Bodhicari Avatara, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life uh, by Shantideva. It's a Mahayana Buddhist text. And there he talks of... Um, uh, he, uh, he talks of um, a blind person finding a jewel in a heap of garbage. And he says, in the same way, the thought of enlightenment, the bodhicitta, has arisen in me. Uh, Once again, it's this idea that um, we stumble across something. We're not looking for it consciously, but there's something that happens to us whether it's out in the world, whether it's an intuition or an insight that arises in our minds, uh, that seems to be almost a gift. Um, if we were to speak of this in the language of, uh, of theism, we'd call it an act of grace, uh, something that's somehow given to us as a free gift. 
I don't think it really matters which language we use. What's in a sense um, striking um, is that sense of uh, a discovery. And it's a discovery of the kind of order that we then feel a kind of uh, almost seduction to follow it, to see where it goes. And so in the case of our story here, we have this man in the forest who finds this ancient path. And again, we can imagine it as maybe just a few traces of a, of a road that has been worn away. We might like to think of it as some old paving stones or something. And our curiosity um, leads us to see where it goes. And in the case of this uh, person, he follows his trail and he ends up at the ruins of an ancient city. And what does he do? Well, he goes back home and then he goes to the king or it says the king or the royal minister and he says, look, in that forest over there you'll see there are the ruins of this city. Why don't we rebuild this city? Why don't we um, set out and try to restore uh, what was once obviously a very grand, a very beautiful, a very prosperous place? And so the, uh, the king and the minister then get the people together and set out on the task of rebuilding and restoring this place so that once again it becomes uh, prosperous and uh, full of people and flourishing once more. So what do these, um, what, uh, <clears throat> do these things stand for? Um, at least in terms of how the Buddha explains them here. Well, the first stands for uh, the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, this is something we'll look at again in a bit more detail as we go through the week, but I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. The Eightfold Path, as the Buddha explains here, has to do with the way we see the world, the way we think about it, the way that then motivates us to uh, speak in a certain way, to act in a certain way, to work in a certain way, or what is sometimes translated as livelihood. And this gives us a foundation, an ethical foundation, on which to then focus our energies, right effort, uh, into paying more attention in becoming more concentrated and focused in such a way that uh, our whole life is somehow brought together in an integrated way that leads us to the ancient city. So what's the ancient city? 
The Buddha describes it in, in somewhat technical Buddhist language, and um, we can go into more detail of that later. But basically he says, I, uh, by, by, I followed that path, <clears throat> and by so doing I've directly known aging and death, its arising, its cessation, and the way leading to its cessation. Uh, now this is code, in a way. This is Buddhist code. Aging and death... Um, are, as you might be aware, uh, the last of the 12 links of dependent origination. Um, We're going to look at this in more detail later. But basically you have this very primary uh, idea in Buddhist thought of conditionality or conditioned arising. And the way in which that is traditionally uh, spelt out is in terms of what are called the 12 links, or sometimes the 10 links. And this is a description of how life, which which starts with consciousness, with what is called name and form, the six senses, contact, feeling how that then provokes craving, clinging, and then then rather trickily that leads to what is called existence and birth and aging and death. It's a very difficult doctrine to um, completely disentangle. But basically what it's talking about is in fact our experience of life. Our experience of how we are constantly in, uh, in contact with a world that provokes a certain reaction to it, which is called grasping or craving or clinging, and how that then constitutes uh, a pattern of behavior, a pattern of life that is considered to be uh, frustrating Um, circular, it just goes round and round in circles, habitual, addictive, and somehow deeply unsatisfying. The next step in the code is the Buddha says, he has seen aging and death, its arising, its cessation, and the path leading to its cessation. And that is a classical formulation of what um, is usually presented as the Four Noble Truths. So in other words, we have the doctrine of conditioned arising, which is then refracted through the Four Noble Truths of suffering, the arising of suffering, as it's usually described, cessation and the path And the path, of course, is the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that now. Um, Tomorrow and the next day, we'll unpack that in much more detail. The only thing I think we really need to bear in mind at the moment, in terms of this analogy, is that conditioned arising and the Four Noble Truths are classically what 
is understood as the content of the Buddha's enlightenment. There are three accounts in the uh, canonical texts of the Buddha's awakening. The first one describes the awakening in terms of his insight into conditioned arising and at the same time his experience of the stopping of grasping or craving or clinging which is synonymous to nibbana, nirvana. The other two texts both describe the awakening or the enlightenment in terms of his understanding the Four Noble Truths. Now, I know that in um, uh, a lot of popular literature on Buddhism, the uh, idea of enlightenment, which I'm afraid is sometimes used in a rather cavalier fashion, um, seems to suggest that Enlightenment is about gaining some insight into a privileged, uh, uh, absolute or ultimate nature of things. And so we think of the the, the person who's experienced enlightenment as the one who has an understanding, say, of emptiness or of the unconditioned or the deathless or the Buddha nature, or the true nature of mind. But all of these are much later developments. Um, In the earliest sources we have, uh, the Buddha's awakening um, is understood in terms of his insight into a complex of truths. Either the idea of conditioned arising or into the idea of suffering, craving, cessation, and the path. So in other words, uh, the ancient city um, is is, is a metaphor, is a way of talking about the awakening itself, or enlightenment itself. The Buddha compares himself, therefore, to someone who has, has found this path, this eightfold path, that has led him to awakening, to enlightenment. But what's striking about the parable is that uh, that in itself is not enough. The man in the forest doesn't then just hang out in the ruins of the ancient city and just meditate for the rest of his life. No. He then comes back home and he goes to the king and the minister and says, look, let's rebuild this place. So in other words, simply to have had some kind of enlightenment is not uh, by any means Uh, the end of the road. It's not as though once you get enlightened then you can just live happily ever after. 
what that enlightenment, and again I prefer not to use the word enlightenment, but rather the word uh, awakening, which is what it more literally means. Uh, That awakening leads you to then um, call upon the society. I mean, nowadays we wouldn't go to the king. We might... um, you know, go to some other uh, public body, uh, the you know the local architectural, archaeological society, and say, let's rebuild this city. But again, let's not get too carried away in in that sort of speculation. But to try to stay with the image, this insight or this enlightenment, therefore, leads the person to then seek. To, um, in a, uh, to, to build something in the world. And again, not just by himself or herself, but through the collaboration of the powers that be, whatever they might be at a given time. So in other words, the rebuilding of the city um, leads the person to um, a collective or a communal endeavour to create something that um, is by its very nature complex, a city where all kinds of different activities can go on, where a whole uh, culture might begin to emerge. Remember that the word city in English is rooted in the Latin term uh, civitas, which is the same root of our word civilization. That, although it might be somewhat grandiose to speak of creating a new civilization, I don't think it's too um, far-fetched to suggest that the kind of awakening or the kind of enlightenment that this path might lead us to would be the germ or at least one of many causes for giving rise to another kind of culture. And again, not a culture in some abstract sense, but a culture uh, in a concrete sense in a shared world with other people. So in this way, the, the whole idea of enlightenment or awakening as a purely private experience uh, that you get if you do enough meditation retreats um, is actually very much put into question. That that would be equivalent just to following the path in the jungle and getting to the ancient ruins without having then gone back home and sought to, um, uh, to, 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 to build on that discovery uh, a culture, a civilization, something that would engage uh, the energies of the community. So here I think we have a, a very good image of the entire process that the Buddha is trying to um, describe. And again, if we look at the very end of the, 
the end of his explanation of this parable, um, he describes that he's then uh, taught this Dharma to his monks and his nuns, his lay men and lay women followers. And it has become widespread, it's become known, successful and prosperous and so on. In other words, he has actually achieved in the course of his lifetime uh, the beginnings of another kind of culture, a culture of the Dharma, or we might call it uh, a culture of awakening. So what this uh, parable provides us with is um, a template, uh, a framework, a context um, for what we're doing here on a meditation retreat. Um, We're focusing here in these uh, days on the cultivation specifically of mindfulness and of concentration. Now these, of course, are steps seven and eight of the Eightfold Path. Now why it is that we've stumbled into this practice is everybody's own particular story, but here we are. We're actually engaged now uh, on a path. A path being something that is um, a purposeful uh, trajectory. A path, remember, is uh, an unobstructed space. Again, we use this word, uh, path, spiritual path, middle way, um, in very um, easily. But often we don't really reflect on the, the metaphoric power that is implied in the idea of a path. It's probably one of the most fundamental images that we find in all of the world's traditions. In fact, we have one tradition called Taoism, which basically means pathism or wayism. Tao is is the common Chinese word for a path. In Buddhism, Then in Christianity you have Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the same idea. In the the Acts of the Apostles, um, the Apostles don't even call themselves Christians. They call themselves followers of the way, followers of the path. So path... Um, I think resonates um, in a very universal way uh, suggesting um, the experience not of just seeing a path ahead of us but actually walking on a path because what matters of course is not the path itself but the walking along it. So what is it like to walk on a path? Uh, I think there are three things that are going on. First, um, when we're on a path, we have a sense that we're going somewhere. 
it's quite different from, say, from walking in a desert where there's no path. You don't quite know where you're going. But when you find yourself on a trail, let's say in, in a forest or in a mountainside, you may not know where it goes. And in fact, part of the enjoyment of walking on a trail is that you don't know what's going to be over the next horizon. There's a sense that you're embarking upon a journey which is leading you into an unknown. And yet you have the, the confidence that because there's a path, you're going to get somewhere. The other feature of a path is that um, it's an unobstructed space. And again, that may not be so obvious what that means. But if you think of a path, let's say, running through one of the fields here, you might imagine it as a kind of a brown, uh, or in Devon, a, a reddish brown uh, um, <clears throat> uh, trace on a green field, let's say. It stands out. You can see it. But when you go close up to it, when you get down on your hands and your knees and you ask yourself, now what is this path really? You find that the path is actually just an empty space. It's the part of the field where the grass or the trees or the plants uh, are not there. Like a path through the woods is a space where there's no trees in the way. A path is, is, is something negative in that sense. It's quite literally an emptiness. There's nothing that gets in your way, as we say. Get in your way. Get in your path. And what that means is that you're able to move freely without encumbrance. Like when I leave this room, I can walk down this middle path here. But if somebody had left a cushion there or a bench or a chair, I'd be blocked. And so the path or the way is a space that allows us to move freely towards some kind of destination. And the other part of a path, the other aspect of a path, is that it puts us in, in connection with a community. In other words, particularly a traditional, in a traditional society, but even today in the Devonshire countryside, a path is only uh, going to remain if people use it, if people walk along it, or deer or badgers and foxes walk along it. A path is maintained by the tread of feet. It has no intrinsic existence of its own. Even if it's a nice piece of tarmac, we're probably fully aware that if it's not used, then within a few years the grasses will start breaking it up again and it'll get overgrown and it'll disappear, just like the path in the forest in our story. So a path is something that um, requires people to walk it. And in that sense, when we, we walk along a path, we are indebted 
to those who have gone before us. And at the same time, because we are walking along it, we are keeping it open for those who come later. So even though you might be completely on your own in a forest or on a mountainside, the very fact of your walking on that path is actually preserving and maintaining and keeping that space open for others. So again, when you look into this idea of a path, you you take a very simple metaphor, when you unpack it, there's an awful lot more going on. So in what way, therefore, when we practice, say, mindfulness, or concentration, or any of the steps of the Eightfold Path, are we doing that? Are we, as it were, finding a trajectory and a direction a purpose in our lives, that's one aspect of it, a destination. To what extent are we able in our practice to, um, uh, to experience that, that flow, as it's sometimes called, in which, although we're sitting still and we're just focused on our breath or on our body or on the sounds outside or whatever it is, We feel when that is going well that we're kind of in a flow. That we've opened up something within us that is moving freely. And that's a wonderful experience. A sense of somehow being on track. uh, Being in a flow. Even though we're completely still. And also as we do this, we are participating in a tradition. We're acknowledging implicitly uh, those who have gone before us. In the case of of Buddhism, it would be right back to the Buddha. All of those generations of men and women, all of whom have been forgotten largely, who through doing this, who keeping this practice of mindfulness and so forth alive have allowed it to be available to us today. It's still a living tradition. And at the same time, as we do it now, we're we're keeping it alive so that others later than us, people we may subsequently teach or train or be an example for, will likewise have such an opportunity. So there's an awful lot that is packed into the idea of a path. But this path leads us somewhere. And according to this um, analogy we have here, it leads us to what is called awakening, enlightenment. But what is curious about the sort of awakening that this uh, ancient city symbolizes is that it contains the path itself. If we think of this in terms of the Four Noble Truths, which we're going to look at tomorrow or the next day, what is the Fourth Noble Truth? It's the Eightfold Path. In other words, it's the practice of 
the way we see, think, speak, act, work, try, be mindful, and be concentrated. So the path that leads us to the city leads us to the path. We have here um, a sense of some kind of feedback loop going on. Again, I'm going to unpack that later. But I think it's very significant. Um, It doesn't suggest that the the, the city is kind of the end of the road. Uh, Again, that's also implied in the fact that we then try to organize the rebuilding of the city. But we're not speaking here. I think this parable makes this very, very clear about getting to some sort of final goal. Now, in traditional Buddhism, um, enlightenment is seen as a final goal. It's very often seen as the ending of suffering, which is a pretty final kind of thing, or nibbana, or the ending of rebirth. In other words, arriving at some sort of transcendent experience, some mystical experience, and that's seen as the goal. Now, this parable actually challenges that way of thinking about what we're doing. The image of the, um, of the, of, of the goal is something that, A, is complex, that includes the path itself and leads to a whole collaborative effort to build another culture. And in a sense, that's something that will be an ongoing activity over generations, over centuries perhaps, over millennia. In other words, what the Buddha seems to be describing here is not... um, arriving at enlightenment and that's the end of the story but actually he's describing a process he's not describing or suggesting that we get to some sort of final state but rather that we commit ourselves or we embark upon um, a process that is both deeply personal as we might experience it in meditation but is also inevitably um, cultural, communal, social, all of those things that are implied in the building and the maintenance and the thriving of a city. I think we also have to bear in mind that um, at the Buddha's time, and we're talking here now of the 5th century BC in India. And for those of you who are not um, historians and who don't know much about the 5th century BC in India, we need to bear in mind that this was a time when the first cities were being built. Prior to the 5th century BC, there, there were no cities in India in north, uh, sorry, be more precise there, in the Gangetic Plain, in the Gangetic Basin. 
in other words, on what we would call loosely the, the main bit of the Indian subcontinent. There were no cities. Probably the first uh, urban settlements uh, were established within a hundred years or so of the Buddha's birth, uh, prior to the Buddha's birth. And the Buddha was born at a time when there were enormous social and political changes going on. And those social and political changes were driven by economic changes. That what had been for, for hundreds of years... Um, basically agrarian or rural farming communities had developed to the point where they had generated sufficient surplus, in other words, more money and wealth that was needed just for survival, to be able to um, begin to collaboratively produce um, uh, larger complexes of what we call cities or towns. Uh, in those days, what they would call cities, we would call a middle-sized town. It wouldn't have been that big. But this um, economic development also allowed for um, <clears throat> part of the population to be non involved in non-productive labor. In other words, men and women could drop out and live from begging and pursue um, philosophical and religious questions and interests. <clears throat> and they, they were called samana, wanderers. And the young uh, Siddhartha, when he left home, basically became a wanderer. And the whole Buddhist movement was a movement amongst wandering mendicants and ascetics, people who did not work on the land or do any kind of mercantile trade but simply pursued their interests philosophy, religion and so on and survived by begging alms from the villages and the towns but they were also supported by the newly emergent kings who were ruling from these cities and because of the surplus were able to uh, command authority and power to a considerable extent through having armies. So monks and soldiers were the outcome of this kind of prosperity. So when the Buddha would have been giving this story, it wouldn't have been just an abstract image. I suspect when we heard it, we probably thought of South America, Mayan civilizations, or something like that. Old, ancient civilizations in forests being discovered. How exciting. The Buddha's time, the image of the city would not have evoked so much that, but rather the possibility uh, that were opened up by the kind of prosperity that was taking place in the Gangetic Basin at that time. So the city would have meant something very different uh, to what it would mean for us today. It would have been a symbol for a new kind of society that was literally emerging in India 
at the Buddha's time. And it seems, I think, that the Buddha was very concerned that his teaching was not just about you know, spirituality, whatever that means, but was actually about creating a, a framework for another kind of society. We're going to uh, keep coming back uh, to that idea as we go through the week, so I'm not going to go into it now. But I think, more or less to conclude now, (coughs) that um, just as the idea of of the city in the jungle would have meant something quite different to people at the Buddha's time, than it might mean for us today. I think also perhaps in line with this idea of staying with the image rather than getting too caught up in what it means, we might, I feel, in some ways relate to this metaphor in a very different way. One of the associations that's come up in my own mind Um, is that Buddhism is a bit like a forest. A very overgrown forest in some ways. And in terms of certainly my own wandering through the forest of Buddhism, which I've been doing for some time now, I can also relate to this story as one of finding within Buddhism itself overgrown paths paths that have been forgotten. And this in some ways is what's taken me back to these earliest texts. For example, let's take this parable itself. I'd been aware, I've been aware probably for 40 years, ever since I started taking an interest in Buddhism, of this idea that the Buddha was like a man who went into a forest and found a path. It's a well-known image. But the way it had been presented to me uh, by my Buddhist teachers was to show that uh, the Buddha taught something that was not original just to him, but was a teaching that many Buddhas of the past had also taught. There was something rather universal and almost cyclical about a Buddha appearing in the world, an enlightened person appearing in the world, and basically restoring this ancient path. Maybe some of you have heard it that way too. But what's curious is that I'd never realized, I'd never been told, and I'd never read anywhere, that the full parable doesn't stop with the path. The path actually takes us to a city in the jungle, And the jungle and the city, the ruined city, inspires the person to go to the king and start to rebuild it. I only came across that when I went back to the early texts to try to find the source of that story. And I probably only did that a few years ago. And I was rather surprised to find the whole story there about the path and the city and the king. So that's an example, in a way, um, of following a fragment of text, in this case. A a well-known little story that comes down to us in the forest of Buddhism. 
and then following it, going back to that early source in the suttas. It only occurs once in the Samyutta Nikaya. And seeing where that story leads. And it leads to this parable. It leads to something that's actually been forgotten to a large extent in Buddhism. And I think this is probably true with many of the doctrines and uh, teachings of Buddhism is that we're often only familiar with um, uh, ideas that have survived and very often they've been interpreted and they've been developed according to later philosophies they've been mixed up say with other forms of Indian or Chinese or Japanese thought to such an extent that the original or path has been overgrown, has been forgotten. So when I read this, when I think of this story now, I think of it as a parable about Buddhism itself, of going back to early sources and discovering anew things in there that I was very surprised to find. So that's one way we might think of that story. But given our present world, I think we can also reconsider this parable um, in a completely inverted way. Um, Because you see, a city for us today is generally not seen as... um, Uh, a place of great uh, opportunity and promise but has often acquired for us a rather negative image. When we think of cities, we often think of these vast metropolises, um, whether it be London or Bombay or Sao Paulo, Uh, something that certainly doesn't need to be rebuilt if anything, the city has become a, not the source of, 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 of culture and further civilization, but we see the city often as the source of the problem we're in. Uh, we see a city as a kind of a source of industrialization, of, of pollution, of, uh, of crime. It doesn't inspire us in the same way. And in fact, we might go so far as to say... <coughs> A man wandering through a city, suppose monks, a man wandering through a city would see an ancient tree. (laughs) And he would follow that ancient tree, look for other trees, and he would follow, and he would come to a park. He would come to a garden or botanical. a a, a, a botanical garden, let's say. And he would say, what an amazing place. And he would go to the king and say, let's rebuild that forest that was once here. I I think we'd be tempted almost uh, to turn it on its head and to think of it in terms of, um, of the ancient forest, remnants of which still survive in the city. And the task, in many ways, is to restore 
um, uh, at least a sense of equilibrium between our civilization, which seems to be running out of control and threatening to destroy the earth itself, and coming back to um, a world in which humans and nature live once more in some kind of harmony. And I think that kind of metaphor is probably for many of us more inspiring and perhaps more true to the situation we are in than the idea of of building another city, which is probably the last thing we need, to be quite honest. So whichever way we look at it, I think the important point to to bear in mind with this uh, parable is that we stumble across a path that leads us to something that can be restored. And the practice, therefore, once we've gained those primary insights, is to embark on a process of restoration, of recovery, of renewal of some kind. And so to think of where the practice of the Dharma might be going today might lead us to completely rethink uh, not only what Buddhism is about, but also what this parable that the Buddhist texts have brought down to us is about. So it becomes a question. It becomes somewhat of a challenge uh, to try to understand what this parable might mean for us today. So that's, um, that's all I'm going to say. And tomorrow I want to look at this idea of conditionality, uh, conditioned arising, dependent origination. And to try to uncover from the earliest texts we have what that might mean, not in an abstract sense, but in terms of the practice we're doing here. Thank you.